Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. And I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the CCF. In today's episode, we'll discuss a prison sentence handed down against a man who defrauded the art world by ripping off Indigenous artist Norval Morriso. We'll discuss whether you have a right to protest on privately owned spaces like in shopping malls. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, Christine's going to tell us about a new bill that I really don't want to talk about, but I guess we have to. So Christine, take it away. So my news headline today is about porn, and I'm the one doing this headline because Josh said that his mom listens to this podcast, and he really doesn't want to talk about porn in front of his mom. And look, my parents definitely do not listen to this podcast, so I am very happy to talk about this. So the headline is about a porn blocking bill called Bill S-210. And it has been called by Professor Michael Geist, the most dangerous internet bill you've never heard of. And for those of you who don't know, Professor Geist is, of course, one of Canada's leading experts on internet law. He is the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa and the editor of four books on copyright law and privacy law. So what exactly is Bill S-210? Now, you may already suspect that it is a Senate bill since it starts with an S and not a C. And it is not a government bill. It is a private member's bill. And it was backed by the Conservatives, the Bloc, and the NDP. And it was actually opposed by some Liberals. And the name of the bill is Protecting Young Persons from Exposure to Pornography Act. And it was actually passed by the Senate this past April. The bill would create an offense for any organization making available sexually explicit material to people under the age of 18 for commercial purposes, and there are high penalties associated with it, $250,000 fine for the first offense and up to $500,000 for subsequent offenses. Now, obviously, it goes without saying that it is a worthy goal to protect children from sexual, uh, sexually explicit imagery. The problem with this is how the bill goes about doing it. It creates a government-enforced global website liability for failing to block underage access, backed by website back blocking and mandated age verification systems that are actually likely to include facial recognition technologies. And this would apply every single time a person accesses the website. So think about how websites are supposed to comply with the law. It It's by establishing these age verification systems, and it effectively means that sites will need users to register with a commercial age verification system in order to access porn, but it's actually not limited to porn websites like Pornhub. It applies to any service that makes sexually explicit materials available. So that would include search engines like Google, social media sites like Twitter, websites uh sort of these these billboard systems like um reddit and it would it would it would um mean that every time you run a search or look up tweets you need to go through this age verification process and you would actually need to go through it every single time you tried to do this according to the way the bill is structured and these age verification systems raise 
real privacy concerns, is in particular, the use of facial recognition technology. And since the bill is really broad in scope, it isn't limited to pornographic sites, the overbreadth of it leaves the bill very vulnerable to constitutional challenge. So think about this risk of overblocking. It the the legislation, the proposed legislation, not only envisions the possibility of blocking content that is actually legal, you know, porno pornography is not illegal as long as you're over 18. It it expressly permits the blocking of lawful content. And this raises the threat of full censorship of otherwise legal content under court order based on notices through a government agency. In this case, it was likely to be the CRTC. Now, as I said, this is a Senate bill and Senate private members bills almost never become law, but this has already passed in the Senate with multi-party support. And I think we need to be concerned there are many policy options that are available to address the issue of protecting children from sexually explicit content, including education for parents. And my personal opinion as a mom of three kids is that giving children smartphones early and giving them unsupervised internet access is actually probably the biggest part of the problem. And educating parents about tools available for them to control what their child sees is a much more preferable approach to restricting access of adults to legal, although explicit, content. Pornography is not illegal. Now, putting age verification processes in place is bound to fail anyway, even with these overbroad approaches proposed in the bill with like facial recognition technology. Kids who want to get around it will get around it just like every child in the past has been able to somehow access you know, pornographic magazines, cigarettes, or alcohol. We should emphasize, I think, the importance of the role of parents in raising their children rather than the role of government in raising children. Josh, I know you don't want to talk about porn, but I need <laughs> to get your take. <laughs> yeah, I I share a lot of these concerns. I think either this bill is basically going to be, you know, toothless and not really enforced, in which case it's just pointless virtue signaling, wasting people's time, or it's going to be enforced in a way that presents real problems for privacy. And the, the issue with privacy, and I think we were discussing this last night, actually, uh, the three of us, is that you never know when you collect information what it's going to be used for later on. So this is requiring people to give their age. And yeah, it's true that, you know, a lot of advertisers can already figure out what our ages are, and they've got these like profiles on us. But I don't think we should be forced to like give out our age and verify our age just to use websites because you don't know. It's just more personal information being collected on you that um, that belongs to you and shouldn't be collected. And um, I do see a problem here with, you know, pornography and especially children accessing. But you're absolutely right, Christine. Like that's the parent's job to make sure their kids are educated about what they might see online and to, you know, um, lock them in their room and not give them smartphones until they're 18. <laughs> ideally. I, I know it's easier said than done. Joanna, what, what do you think about this? 
Well, this is making me nostalgic for the good old days when I was a kid in the 90s. And if you wanted to see porn, you had to go on the um, those like pay-per-view cha uh, channels and occasionally would like, you know, it'd be like gray and fuzzy and you'd be <laughs> able to like catch flashes. We used to do that when we were having sleepovers. So needless to say, I'm skeptical that um, bringing in age gate requirements and facial recognition, you know, if I was able to um, access flashes of porn in the 90s. I, I'm like pretty skeptical that you could keep any kid who has internet access, no matter what the the sort of best efforts are. But yeah, this might clearly is a case where the cure might be worse than the disease. Um, but on the whole, I'm just, I'm just like, you know, more regulation, instituting more, you know, more requirements, facial recognition, so that clearly sounds bad. On the other hand, like I fully believe that the internet knows more about me, knows my soul better than I do. Like so. this just seems like some puritanical <laughs> impulse yeah. from yeah. from some party members, so the, the conservatives, the NDP, and the bloc. They, I think, like it's really important to remember, porn is legal. You are allowed to look at porn, and putting all of these restrictions in place, like needing to show. A, a facially recognized driver's license in order to watch your watch some some kinky <laughs> material. I mean, I, I'm deeply un, I'm deeply uncomfortable with that. I think that it's taking things way too far, and it's really concerning that this has already passed the Senate. Like, just get parents more involved in having awkward conversations with their children about uh, this type of material and the risks associated with early exposure to it. Anyway, okay. yeah. <laughs> Enough talk about porn, Josh. Let's talk about something more uplifting, such <laughs> as people uttering death threats uh, in the Eaton Center during the festive season. Yeah, Merry Christmas to everyone. So <laughs> you've probably seen these viral videos by now of pro-Palestinian or in some cases pro-Hamas protesters disrupting Christmas shopping in malls. And, you know, they're harassing kids who are going to sit on Santa's lap and they're shutting down Indigo because it's uh, owned by a Jew who um, is supporting an Israeli charity. And they're shutting down Zara because, well, it's actually hard to figure out why they're shutting down Zara. Apparently, they did some ad that um, some people found offensive. The uh, ad was so. messed up, if you haven't seen it. It looked like, it looked like a, it. a model in, dressed in Zara clothes holding... A, a shrouded body over her shoulder like a, a dead body and weird, weird but but it didn't seem to me to be even like a colorable reference it was to Gaza. it was no, shot in july it was yeah. it was the, the pictures are old <laughs> yeah anyway yeah. so so like but regardless these protests like they're 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 super annoying like i don't think anybody thinks you're convincing anyone by doing this but um, it does raise this question and, uh, oh, the most disturbing one of these is, is this one where this masked man is inside the Eaton Center and he says, I will lay you to sleep. I'll put you six feet deep, which is a pretty obvious death threat. And the cops are standing there. They don't do anything. And then people are upset because the police didn't, didn't arrest anyone. And the police union is now saying, well, the victim didn't want to press charges, which is not how it works, but. Anyway, all that aside, what's really striking to me is just that like police and security guards don't seem to be doing anything and they don't seem to be, you know, stopping these these protesters or trying to trying to get them out of the malls. And it raises this question of whether you have a right to gather and protest in what are obviously private spaces like shopping malls 
And the short answer is no, you don't, but it's also a little bit complicated. So, you know, people assume that because this is private property, security guards and police have the right to exclude people from these shopping center properties. And this makes sense because, you know, the common law says that landowners have the exclusive right to decide who's allowed to remain on their land. And this has been codified into, you know, trespass to property acts, which make it an offense to enter onto someone else's land, stay on it and not leave when they tell you to. And I, th I think that's correct that, you know, you can't just protest anywhere you like on private property. But the law is not as clear as it looks. And that's because certain people, <coughs> communists, um, have been trying, <laughs> trying for decades with various levels of success to argue that shopping malls are quasi-public property where you can exercise your right to free expression and your right to free assembly, peaceful assembly that is, and that you know police and private property owners can't can't stop you. And so, you know, this there's sort of a 2023 version of this argument, which is like in social media where people say Twitter, even though it's clearly private property, is um, somehow a space where you're owed free expression, where the charter uh, protects you. Um, and your right to free expression, because this is like the new town square. So there, there's an older version of this, which is that the mall has become the new town square. And so you can protest there, even though the charter clearly just applies to, to um, public spaces. So I found this article, it was pretty useful. It was by someone named Lisa Loader in the Journal of Law and Social Policy. And she makes this argument that malls have become the new town square. And so you have to be able to express your 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 speech there and uh, assemble there in protest. So this started back in the 60s, or at least goes back at least that far, when striking retail workers wanted to be able to go to the mall to tell shoppers, you know, don't shop at this Kmart because Kmart's bad and we're on strike. We're kicked out by mall owners and the mall owners said they're trespassing and they were told to leave. And the picketers argued that, you know, the public has been extended this sort of general invitation to come onto the property and malls can't kick you out without violating your, your rights. And courts were skeptical of this, but the Manitoba Court of Appeal in a case called Harrison and Carswell sided with the people who wanted to pick it and, and um, stay on private property. And this went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, no, uh, Justice Dixon wrote the judgment for the majority and found that these labor picketers didn't have a right to be on this private mall property without the permission of the owner, they were trespassing. But in 1980, the California Supreme Court sided with those people who say that, you know, the mall is is quasi-public and it's the new town square. And so you, you have to let the protesters protest at the mall. And then the Ontario Human Rights Commission took up the cause and they were very in favor of um, a right to protest in malls. And the charter passed in 1982. And People thought maybe that changed things. So basically, Jack Layton, former NDP leader, the late husband of Toronto's current mayor, Olivia Chow, decided to test this in Ontario in the Eaton Centre, the very place where this latest controversy happened. And he got himself arrested for trespassing by protesting in a mall after being told uh, repeatedly to leave. And he actually won. And the, the case is often now held up by people who claim you do have this charter right to pro protest in malls. But... You know, first of all, it was a lower court case in Ontario, so it's not binding on appeals courts or in other provinces. And it's from the early days of the charter, and it doesn't really accord with later to be 
jurisprudence and the facts seem pretty limited to the case and it certainly would not extend to like a violent protest because if you read the charter it only protects peaceful assembly and so violent assemblies are not not protected anyway so there's there's good reason to believe from later cases which i won't get into that you don't have a right to protest in in malls that that's not the case but people will always hold up this jack layton case until it's settled by some higher court and say that you do have a right to protest so that's uh basically my little history lesson on that so my yeah my view is you don't have the right but uh some people beg to differ joanna do you have any thoughts on this whole situation well, I just like want to reflect on the other part that irrespective of whether you have the right to protest in a mall, you certainly don't have the right to utter a death threat to a police officer. And also, as you said, this argument that the, the victim uh, didn't want to continue with charges, which I guess was somebody that was standing right behind the police officer. That's not how the criminal law system works at all. And so I think just the the second issue to consider is how we should feel about the cops rather arrogantly. And they've claimed um, they tweeted out in response to there's been obviously vocal criticism of this because you look at other policing uh, so-called incidents in Canada over the last Rutgers two years, the Freedom Convoy, <laughs> and you see differing responses. So there was obviously vocal criticism of this and uh, the, the Toronto Police Service uh, responded to one of these critiques on Twitter this week and said, uh, officers were at the Eden Centre to respond to a protest where threats were directed to a member of the public, not police. Okay, true. Yeah, the victim chose not to pursue the matter. And then TPA members are working each day to ensure protests do not escalate. And we are grateful for their efforts. So this is all can be swept under the rug of de-escalation. But it also sends a signal to certain members of the public that they can get away with brazenly saying, you know, like beyond beyond plausible deniability, uttering death threats. So I find that to be puzzling and disconcerting because the thing that comes next uh, is something that is uh, terrifying to to contemplate. Uh, Christine, any reaction? Yeah, mine is similar to yours. I mean, I immediately thought of the convoy where people were arrested for protesting on public property and for not uttering death threats. And I'm, I'm not sure I agree with your skepticism about de-escalation. I think police de-escalation is a really good thing. I, I want the police to de-escalate situations as much as possible. Police have a really difficult job and we've seen that in other jurisdictions, particularly in the United States, when police don't de-escalate, it, it, I mean, things get really bad in the U.S. and uh, at, at protests. And I don't want there to be violence. I want police to keep people separate, to keep people moving along. And in this case, I think it seems clear to me that there was an uttered threat. And we absolutely know that the victim of the threat is not the one who decides whether or not charges will be laid. I think the threat, the standard for uttering threats was probably met in this case. And even in the context of de-escalation, I think you could make arrests, especially given that you could probably somehow identify this person. There's cameras everywhere in, in these 
uh, malls. So I think it would be you know, reasonable to expect the police to be able to identify who made these threats and arrest him later, even if in the moment they wanted to de-escalate the situation. There's nothing that precludes an arrest later. So anyway, that's my take. Uh, when we come back, we're going to go to break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the sentence in the Norval Moriso scandal. Hi, it's Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the CCF. Happy holidays to everyone. And thank you so much for listening, rating, reviewing, subscribing, subscribing to our email list, supporting our work. It's been an extraordinary year for the CCF from challenging the invocation of the Emergencies Act in court, appearing at the Supreme Court to uh, make submissions against the No More Pipelines bill, uh, challenging Calgary City Council for their draconian anti-free speech protest bans. And we have tons more work to do. 2024 is shaping up to be our biggest year yet. So if you want to support us, if you want to support freedom and holding governments to account in courts of law and court and public opinion in Canada, now is the best time to do so. Between now and the end of the year, a generous group of donors are matching donations up to $100,000 so you can double your impact. Special shout out to uh, freedom lovers like Mitchell Olbaum of Toronto, who is supporting this podcast and the CCF's work defending liberty. Join us, join Freedom's Defense Team by going to www.theccf.ca slash donate. Theccf.ca slash donate double your impact. Thank you and happy holidays to you and your family. So the ringleader of the largest art fraud in Canadian history was sentenced last week to five years in prison. Gary Lamont, 61 years old of Thunder Bay, pleaded guilty to various charges, including forging artworks, uh, defrauding the public in an amount above $5,000. And this all has to do with artworks attributed to uh, probably the most legendary Indigenous artist in Canadian history, Norval Morso. Uh, so uh, Justice Bonnie Warkenton in Thunder Bay uh, sentenced Lamont, and she noted several aggravating factors, including just how widespread this fraud was. It spanned almost 20 years. Um, the amount of paintings and victims involved. So Lamont was essentially uh, coercing uh, other younger Indigenous people to create these fake paintings. Um, they're thought to be perhaps thousands in circulation, um, the emotional and financial impact on the victims, and of course, the impact on the legacy and estate of Morso himself, who has passed away. Um, and Lamont had a previous criminal record. He was already serving time for sexual assault, drug charges, and other frauds. Um, so as I said, he was really the ringleader in the sense that he ran a sort of like makeshift uh, sweatshop in Thunder Bay where younger Indigenous, uh, mostly men, um, were coerced into creating these forged, forged artworks. Um, there was also rape involved. Um, it's a real uh, hell scene. And so far, it's been confirmed that 190 Lamont ring, ring, ring forgeries have been identified. Um, 117 have been seized by police, um, but it's been estimated that there are likely at least 5,000 more fraudulent, more so paintings in circulation. Now, 
This story um, is of particular salience and interest to me because um, the case was brought to prominence back in 2019 when a few things happened. First, Bare Naked Ladies uh, keyboardist Kevin Hearn. Uh, this actually came to light when he had been a collector of Morso paintings and he had lent his Morso, uh, one of his Morso artworks to the Art Gallery of Ontario for an exhibition. And the curator of the exhibition contacted him and said, um, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your painting is a fake. Uh, so obviously he sued the art gallery that was selling these fakes. Um, but my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, Jamie Kastner, went to high school with Kevin Hearn and heard about this story. He's a documentary filmmaker. And so he made a doc about this whole affair, which he thought was kind of about art fraud and forgeries and didn't know that it was going to lead him into this dark and sordid story of crime um, and exploitation uh, and drugs. Um, so that movie is called There Are No Fakes. Uh, we will put a link to it in the show notes. You can watch it for free on TVO. And so Jamie really bringing this story to prominence, uh, his film opened at Hot Docs in 2019, um, was part of how the police became, or I think effectively the, the cause of the police becoming interested in this story. So I got his reaction after all of that uh, to this particular sentence. So let's hear what uh, director Jamie Kastner has to say about this. Well, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's it's the first time that that anybody significant in this uh, in this whole debacle has actually admitted guilt. I mean, as per the title of my film, uh, you know, ironically, it was called "There Are No Fakes" because that was the refrain of of one side of this story. High and low, that's what they swore, in spite of. 20 years of, of mounting evidence and, and serious journalistic coverage prior to my film. To the contrary, you know, there are no fakes. There are no fakes. There are no fakes. And here you have a ringleader admitting uh, that there are fakes. So that's that's pretty groundbreaking in and of itself. Um Looking at the 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 charges itself now, I mean, it's it's worth remembering that as as we explored in the film, art fraud is sort of only part of this story, uh, and in in uh, kind of concurrently with with the frauds being produced in in the ring that that Gary Lamont led uh, was was a whole bunch of horrible. Uh, sexual assault and abuse going on uh, uh, of young men. 2016, he was he was charged for uh, you know uh, uh, the abuse of five victims uh, spanning 14 years, and he was sentenced to five years at that point. Then he was arrested again while still in custody in in 2022, and and charged with sexual assault with a weapon. And kind of this this past month, concurrently with having pled guilty to the art fraud for the first time, he's also uh, uh, been charged with with three more sexual assault incidents between 2021 and 2022. So sorry, he was clearly out long enough, brief, uh, briefly, relatively speaking, but long enough to be charged with uh, more sexual assaults for which he has been sentenced to... Um, Two years less a day plus 15 months uh, pre-custody. So you know, whatever, three years, give or take. So 
he's he's and now he's and now he's being being charged with the art fraud uh uh um this feels like some kind of math quiz you know <laughs> uh, uh for for another five years less less one year uh served in custody so I mean, by my count, that comes to if anyone alive could have possibly followed that, you know, but roughly seven years, seven further years that he is going to have to serve. But, you know, four for the four for the art fraud, three for the sexual assault. And, you know, the question of the question always looms with this stuff, you know, for the average layman like myself, you know, is is that fair? Is that just, you know, what what is the sort of price tag for for that kind of pain and suffering he caused to his sexual assault victims, let alone the art fraud. Yeah, well, there are questions about, so so five years, if I look at it in the context of, and in the sentencing decision, the aggravating factors include, um, include that he already had a criminal record, but also just the scale and scope of the fraud itself and the impact on sort of like indigenous heritage and indiz indigenous culture. Um, so I'm the last person to say, you know, we want heavier prison sentences. But in context, it actually seems sort of light to me. If we're just talking about the five years for the art fraud, like the scope of it, we're not talking about two or three or 10 paintings. They've already seized, the cops have seized, I think, 117 forgeries that can be directly traced to him. And there's speculation that there could be like thousands. Yeah, I think, I mean, they actually seized, uh, uh, when they made the arrests last spring, uh, uh, in March of last year, they seized a thousand paintings in total. Uh, yes, 117 of which have been have been attributed to him specifically, but that number could could well rise yet. And yes, this is of an of an estimated five to six thousand out there, they're saying. It was three thousand around the time that my film came out, in, in that was the estimate. And my film came out in in twenty nineteen. So yes, it is such a particular crime and so, or combination of crimes and and particular story. And as I saw it, kind of wading into all aspects of it while making the film, it was really a story of of kind of. And I, I think this term is bandied around a lot these days, but it's very literal in this case, you know, of latter day colonialism and of uh, uh, abuse of of indigenous people on every level by the same group of people, you know, are, are, are committing abuse that is is physical, is cultural, you know, is is fraudulent, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's um, and it, it's and these things all happen concurrently. I mean, I, I've spoken to people in the States, you know, talking to to Americans in in the industry about about this film while we were working on it. And I, I you know, their jaw would drop when they they heard this this incredible sequence of events, you know, of, of how, how this all happened. And then the, the kind of they would they would be shocked to hear how how little time he was sentenced to at the end of this for all of this sexual assault that was that was only five years but i mean i know we have a different system here that is believes in rehabilitation rather than just retribution and and i i believe in that in principle uh, uh, nevertheless, it does, you know, and I, I know that the sentencing is always some kind of, you know, product of a certain amount of horse trading that goes on, uh, uh, between the lawyers. Right. And, and 
for instance, in this round of sentencing with Lamont, part of the deal was that his wife, Linda Kachik, who was also one of the people arrested in March and who was clearly an accomplice to everything that was going on, uh, uh, the charges were dropped against her in the deal. So on one hand, I was sort of had been have been a bit shocked by the the low number of years that you've been hearing, like three more sexual assaults, and he just gets another another year and a half attacked uh, uh, on, for instance. So uh, my first reaction was, well, five years, like that's that's a substantial amount of time for a sixty one year old man. But but then you think, well, he only got five years for the first for the first round of sexual assaults. It's very hard to kind of figure out what justice looks like in this case. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's certainly unusual that a documentary film ends up with a precedent setting uh, criminal court sentence. So thank you, Jamie Kastner. <laughs> Thanks very much, Joanna. Okay, um, so why don't we go to bad legal takes of the week? Josh, what's your bad legal take? Before I get into my bad legal take, I just want to tell a really quick story because this whole Norval Morriso scandal has reminded me of it. So um, I took my niece to the McMichael Gallery recently, and it has a bunch of Norval Morrisos. And uh, she was um, she was less impressed by Morriso than I expected. She was more into like the Tom Thompson. But the funny thing was, like every art gallery, they have a plethora of um, exhibitions on climate change and, and racial justice, because those are the two things that are just sort of hot right now in the, the art world. And we went through one of these climate change exhibitions and she, she sort of sighed and sat down and she said, you know, we wouldn't have these problems if everybody drove a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> From the mouths of babes, make it happen, Elon. Free Teslas for everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Her dad definitely wants one. Uh, he talks a lot about it. So my bad legal take goes to the entire Ottawa Carleton District School Board for their incredibly childish behavior over the last couple of years and their silly code of conduct process, which culminated last night in their decision to sanction one of their trustees, Dr. Nilly Kaplan-Mirth. So we've talked about Dr. Kaplan-Mirth on the podcast before. She's famous for being a very aggressive pro-mask mandate advocate and she sort of famously chewed out Steve Pakin on a TVO in an interview, which is kind of funny if you know how gentle Steve Pakin is. And she's a doctor, but she felt so strongly about the need for mask mandates in schools long after people had realized that masks don't work particularly well. And so she ran for school board and she then used that position to repeatedly push for mask mandates. And she lost this big vote. Um, where they considered bringing them back after everyone else had gotten rid of them. And uh, this led to plenty of acrimony with her her colleagues, her fellow trustees. So at one point, uh, Dr. Kaplan-Mirth texted a fellow trustee and she accused her of voting with the white supremacists if she voted against the mask mandate. And this is because in you know Kaplan-Mirth's worldview, to be anti-mask mandate is to be white supremacist. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But in her mind, I think that sort of the trucker protest was not this legitimate venting of frustrations over COVID-19, but was something more akin to like a KKK meeting. And so to her, it's all sort of one and the same. Problem is this trustee was 
was black and she was not happy to be accused of white supremacy, which is understandable. So these various code of conduct complaints arose. And uh, at this later meeting, another trustee brought this up and she said, you know, Cap- Kaplan Mirth had was a white woman attacking a black woman, referring to this text message incident. And this made Dr. Kaplan Mirth in her signature move go ballistic. And she said, I object. You will not characterize me as a white woman. I am a Jewish woman who has received daily anti-Semitic death threats for standing up for my health and safety. You have been out to get me from day one. And then she accused this trustee of of racism. And um, this all leads to this investigation, which produced a 188-page report by a lawyer. This is like a single-space report that that the school board spent huge amounts of money, presumably, to, to produce, and it found that Kaplan Mirth violated the code of conduct because her behavior was, among other things, disrespectful. And there's a lot in this report. You know, there's this part that says she violated her code of conduct for ignoring a security plan put in place for her after she had complained about, you know, not being protected enough by the school board. And, you know, basically, instead of going to what the school board called a safe space that they had set up for her, she went into this other room and she, you know, kicked out her colleagues and was yelling at them because she wanted to talk to the media. And there's another part in the report about um, an allegation that she, instead of, you know, following her safety plan, she baited Rebel News because she really, I guess, wanted to talk to them, even though she was saying on Twitter she was afraid of them. And so not sure if that's true or not, but the lawyer that did this code of conduct review found that she, quote, chose a path of conduct that she knew or ought to have reasonably known would create an intimidating environment, which did not contribute to a respectful workplace, and that she did not make every reasonable effort to resolve the issues arising from friction, conflict, or disagreement in a respectful and professional manner. And then as a result of this report, trustees voted to find that she had violated the code of conduct and they sanctioned her. Her punishment is that she can't attend the next school board meeting in January and she can't sit on committees for three months, which actually sounds like more of a reward than a punishment if you've ever sat on a committee. But the point is, as much as I don't like Kaplan Mirth's politics or her tactics, these code of conduct reports are are such a waste of time and money. And they're also a free speech concern for me. Uh, you know, these codes of conduct say you can't say anything disrespectful, but this just allows other trustees to, to sort of weaponize these codes of conduct when, you know, we elect school board trustees to debate things and we want them to be able to have that vigorous debate that some people might interpret as disrespectful without facing punishment. And these codes of conducts are increasingly used to, to just attack, you know, political opponents, whether it's a school board or whether it's on city councils. We've seen cases where school uh, city councils have like taken away the pay for months of their fellow councillors because they didn't like things that they said. And so as much as I don't really like Kaplan Mirth's tactics, I think this whole code of conduct process is just a bad legal take and uh, odious from a free expression point of view. So that's it. That's my that's my take. Um, Christine, let's hear yours. Yeah, I agree with you completely, Josh. I think Kaplan Mirth is, to use my son's favorite term, I think she's cuckoo bananas. Mm-hmm. But I think that the... That's pretty good, kindly. The, the use of these 
uh, code of conduct is a huge problem in municipalities across Ontario where they're used to just silence people on city council who do things that some councillors just don't like. They don't like some certain councillor and they cost a fortune. And this is a big problem, especially for small municipalities. Well, let's go to my bad legal take, which comes from former Canadian Supreme Court Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin. And the bloom is off the rose mm. for me when it comes to McLaughlin, who, when I was a student, was someone who I really looked up to. And now, just a few examples, her dissenting opinion in the famous free expression case, Keegstra, had some really important language about the value of freedom of expression. Uh, just an example, she said, attempts to confine the guarantee of free expression only to content which is judged to possess redeeming value or to accord with the accepted values strikes at the very essence of the value of freedom of expression. And her opinion in Shayuli, which is the 2005 decision from the Supreme Court in a legal challenge to the Canadian government's monopoly healthcare system. That was also very inspiring. She wrote, access to a waiting list is not access to healthcare. Now, I just do not understand how she went from being that person to who she seems to be now. So she retired from the Supreme Court and now sits on the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal as a foreign judge. There are 10 temporary foreign judges on the Hong Kong Court. And the court this week began the trial of publisher and entrepreneur Jimmy Lai, and the trial is under the Chinese national security law. As the publisher of a large publication called Apple News, Mr. Lai was extremely critical of Beijing, and once the national security law came into effect, he was one of about 250 Hong Kongers who were arrested since 2020 on these trumped up national security larges, charges. Basically, his offense was embarrassing Beijing with this relentless advocacy for democratic freedoms and opposition to the national security law. He was then charged and marched out of his publishing offices and arrested. Like many other people who have been charged under the law, Mr. Lai has been denied bail. He's been denied the right to a jury and he's been denied his right to choice of lawyer to represent him in court. He faces the rest of his life in prison if he is convicted. And his lawyers, the ones who he hired but is are not allowed to actually represent him, they see a guilty verdict as a foregone conclusion. They think he's going to be convicted. Now, McLaughlin sits on the court that is trying him, but she is not one of the judges that is going to be hearing his case. Foreign judges like McLaughlin do not hear national security cases, but she is serving, I think, as window dressing for the authoritarian regime in Beijing. And she has been called on by many people to resign from her role because it serves this window dressing function. Lai's son asked her to resign. Lai's lawyer asked her to resign. And there are other foreign judges who sat on the court. And when the national security law came into effect, they resigned their role from their role of the court because they were afraid of this exact thing of being used as window dressing for an authoritarian law. Now, McLaughlin refuses to resign. And my bad legal take of the week goes to her for her reason why she won't. She's quoted in the Globe and Mail saying, the court is doing a terrific job of helping maintain rights for people in so far as the law permits. 
It's crazy. It's a pretty big disclaimer. (laughs) uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's a a pretty big asterisk. So the evidence that she gave to support this this statement was she gave an example of a case where the Hong Kong court upheld a decision giving equal inheritance rights to same-sex couples over objections from Beijing. And like, fine, that's that's nice. That's good. But it's not exactly the same thing as throwing someone in jail for life because he criticized the government. And the rule of law in Hong Kong courts has been fundamentally poisoned by the national security law. And no, you know, smiley face, gender, gender and sexual orientation, equity and inheritance is going to overshadow the fact that they're throwing their political opponents in in jail without lawyers, without um, without access to bail and without the ability to choose a jury. And I mean, it's absolutely scandalous. And I think McLaughlin is naive or worse in thinking that there is any role for her in this court, aside from helping to lend her hard earned credibility to an oppressive regime. So that's my bad legal take. Joanna, how about you? Yeah. So the use of, uh, of stereotypes about conjugal satisfaction has made it into another criminal sentencing decision. So this is a ruling from the BC Provincial Court where uh, Justice Galati accepted the findings of a psychiatric assessment that lack of sex in a marital couple was a factor in why a Vancouver man secretly recorded an international student who was living in his home um, as she was naked or partly dressed. Um, and so the accused uh, had was given a conditional discharge contingent on completing probation, pretty light sentence. Um, he had been charged and pleaded guilty to voyeurism, which has a maximum sentence of five years imprisonment. Um, he was a 43-year-old father renting a bedroom to this international student. And she discovered that the toothbrush charger in the bathroom, very clever, that she shared with his teenage daughter was a spy cam for him to to, to peeping Tom on her. And so the judge said, that means he was spying on his daughter. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. This is even worse than I thought. It's really bad. So the judge said, at bar, the offense is not trivial, but it's also not the most serious end of the spectrum either. Um, Further, it appears that the offender's actions were out of character. And as described in the psych assessment, it appears that marital intimacy deficits contributed to the offending conduct. Um, Now, the first part maybe seem icky, the part about that, you know, on on the spectrum, it's not the worst conduct. It always sounds icky, but you kind of have to make distinctions that are always going to be distasteful that, yes, you know, put a peeping Tom camera is not as bad as actual sexual assault, is not as bad as various types of sexual assault. Um, So I don't actually object to that. But this part about marital defects and how much uh, conjugal satisfaction this this 43 year old was getting in his marriage, um, that that somehow justifies or mitigates the moral blameworthiness. First of all, as like an empirical matter, I don't 
agree. I think creeps are creeps and pervs are pervs. And we have lots <laughs> of instances of men who uh, are, <laughs> to quote our late mayor, getting more than enough to eat at home um, and <laughs> still engage in creepy conduct. Although Rob Ford said that he did not do that um, and rest in peace. Um, but second Must of all, one of his drunken stupors. Yeah, it's just it's it relies on on ridiculous stereotypes. Um, it's like have sex with your husband or he'll turn into a perv. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe the government should rethink their porn blocking if this is where <laughs> it leads. <laughs> yeah. So at best, it's a logical um, non sequitur. At worst, it relies on some of the worst discriminatory stereotypes. Um, yes, that, you know, wives, you have you have to you have a uh, conjugal duty to your husband or he may put a spy cam in the au pair's toothbrush holder. It's so preposterous. Sick. And we've seen this pop up occasionally in, you know, in the wild ride that is criminal courts. Um, so bad legal take. No, sir. Um, your wife cannot be blamed for your creepy perv activities. So that's it for me. All right, that's it for the show too. So as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And I really do mean go rate and review us right now. Otherwise, I will accuse you of violating the not reserving judgment code of conduct. <laughs> and just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel by visiting our website, thecf.ca, and signing up for our Freedom Update newsletter, where you can stay in touch with everything we're working on, written by our colleague Russ. And just a reminder that we are a nonpartisan legal charity funded by donations. So please do donate if you can. And remember that if you donate by the end of this year, which is coming up very soon, you will be able to double your impact because a group of generous donors has agreed to match whatever we raise up to $100,000. Thanks for listening. <laughs>